Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next podcast here at Treknababble. This is Kevin. This is Matthew. And we are going to be reviewing the season six premiere, A Time to Stand. It's been a while since we were uh, at Deep Space Nine, and uh, the season five went out on a hell of a bang. So I'm certainly, I remember being very excited to find out what was going to happen. Um, uh, so uh, this sets yeah. up definitely, I think, the f- biggest. Uh, attempt to date of the serialized story um like i want to judge particularly this episode since it has to it has a lot to do on its own that you can't give it credit or demerit for what the later episodes do um but i definitely be i remember being very intrigued by the whole setup of the opening of season six yeah you know uh i was catching up on some of our prior reviews of season five and you know, they sort of teased it off and on, and then you know, kind of, kind of went a little bit more full bore near the end of season five. Uh, the season five finale, you know, it. I agree that the the sort of back half of that episode was very action packed and you know a really good sort of action climax, and you know, finally gives us something. Um, really inherently dramatic, you know, our crew being put off the station, that sort of thing, uh, gives us a good villain. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean the Dominion. Uh, although Wayun is good, it gives us the good villain Dukat, you know, this sort of quizzling, um, you know, traitor uh, who we know from having watched the prior five seasons has always kind of coveted Cisco's chair uh, and wanted to have Tarak Nora back. Um, you know, so it was a great setup, and uh, I'm excited to see how it goes. Uh, and I agree with you. I mean, why don't we just start? So let's uh, get our media sure. queued up, and we can all press play simultaneously in three, two, one, press play. So we've got a little memoriam here and a recap. Last time on Deep Space Nine. You know, the recap is catching us up on the Jem'Hadar buildup, the frankly magical solution of self-replicating minds, uh, you know, sort of the standoff. We get a view of some of the battle scenes, uh, which explosions aside were otherwise quite good um that uh i I really wish that they would have blown a chunk out of the deep space nine station yeah but that that panning shot over the station while the ships were flying over and under it was just fucking great oh yeah yeah, the choreography of the battle was quite good. Also, not to, not to do this every time we have a conversation, but no to J.J. Abrams, that is how you stage a battle sequence. Yeah, shaky cam does not work in space. Sorry. When it, it really doesn't work in any video representation of any three-dimensional uh, dogfight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like maybe if you're putting us in the cockpit for like a minute that could be fine but not if you're trying to tell us the story of the battle 
So yeah, here come the Jamadar. Starfleet crew is evacuated. And so I like, it says, and now the continuation. And any Star Trek fan worth his or her salt will note that change of word. Right. You know? It's like, huh? Okay, and, I'll be, and what I love about this shot is this is like the direct callback to that last shot of last episode of the Defiant joining the, you know, triumphant, huge star f- fleet of Starfleet ships who were clearly going to go back and take the station, right? Wrong. Just... Yeah. Like the the excel the limping Excelsior class ship being dragged by the tug leaking whatever that's yeah, a flag. I don't know what it was leaking, but it looked cool. Yeah, and it's just it's a flag to the audience that the war is not going it's well. Getting real. Folks. Yeah, and I remember my biggest concern for the plot of oh, I have to stop for a minute and say Terry Farrell looks incredibly attractive while disheveled. It's almost upsetting. Um, yeah, but, I mean, she's. Uh... It would not be a bad thing to wake up next to her. Yeah, um, I'm I'm compelled to agree. Um, but uh, I think my biggest question, my biggest fear about uh, a call to arms is that we would resolve the station issue in the premiere of the next episode. That it would be this self-contained two-parter of losing, then regaining the station. And I think yeah. that opening shot is almost, <clears throat> excuse me, is is something to the audience that says, nope. Um, don't expect that by the end of this episode. Well, I, I think um, just the, the, the types of scenes that they're starting this episode with is an indication of that also. It's like, if they're going to go at this pace, you know, with these sort of uh, intermediate kind of scenes, it's like, there's no way they could resolve this in 45 minutes, right? And I, I just remember once I realized that, once it was like really sunk in, oh, and I, and I think I knew the exact moment I knew for sure we weren't getting the station back and I'll, I'll flag it when it comes up. But I remember just thinking, that's just ballsy. Like there's something like, just re- like I imagine like, uh, you know, Iris Stephen Bear or um, Ron Moore having to really defend that decision in the room to to at least one of the producers maybe to you know Berman himself to be like we can't retake the station right away it guts the intensity of the war how do you feel about Bashir kind of this is sort of a callback to when Spock used to calculate the odds of things and it would always be with some decimal point and it just eh um, it, 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 it nags me just because there's a thread in a lot of entertainment of the most intelligent person in the room must also be socially awkward and a bit of a jerk as an artifact of his intelligence, which is not true. And then there's an attitude of, well, we'll excuse his jerkishness because he is so intelligent. See every episode of House or Sherlock ever. Um, I was happy Bashir finally got a character that was not skirt chasing jackass. So I, I decided to let it go. Yeah. Is this the introduction of the DS9 coffee mug? Uh, no, I, I think uh, th- maybe that style. Because I definitely think there were some DS9 mugs in the, on the Defiant. Uh, I think like the one Worf walks in that was like additionally Quark branded. I will say, wh- whatever else the issues with the writing or Worf being a jerk... Um, the actors have really good physical chemistry. Like the way she just leapt into his arms, that always that always makes me chuckle. She's a tall drink of water, though. 
And I really have to compliment the hair department. The I've said this last season, the sweet back then ponytail rather than straight ponytail flatters her statuesque features so nicely. Well done, guys. Well done. So they're sort of returning to some of the story threads. The exposition on the doctor being genetically engineered was a bit ham-fisted, I have to say. Um, you know, but uh, they're getting us back up to speed with the Worf and Dax marriage. I love Martok. I've, I've been re-watching uh, Deep Space Nine with some friends who had not seen it before, and we just got through uh, season six and seven, and it was just a lovely opportunity to get reacquainted with General Martok. He just, he's just so much fun. So they did a lot of this stuff, talking about like this fleet and that fleet, the seventh fleet. I've never bought Alexander Siddig's, you know, sort of like I'm upset acting. That's funny. Uh, we were before we started podcasting, we were discussing uh, Game of Thrones. It doesn't happen for a while, but uh, he has a recurring guest spot in season five of Game of Thrones, and I have to say, I think he's taken some acting lessons. Oh, look! I mean, we've we've ragged on Alexander Siddig a little bit, and he's not that bad. It's it's just. It's kind of like being a coach in a baseball team. It's like the good coaches know what their players are capable of and don't ask them to do things that they're not capable of. And, well, <laughs> to extend the metaphor a little bit, that you know, I think some of the editorial staff was pushing a little bit hard on a few of the actors, uh, you know, Siddig and Chase Masterson uh, spring to mind. That was a very long introduction. I mean, seven and a half minutes? Wow. Yeah, it's got to be up there. Well, I mean, even if you take out the last time, which probably wasn't more than a minute, I mean, it's, it's a. It really wasn't much of a teaser either. You know, this is sort of like the. You're catching your breath a little bit, which is an interesting way to start. Now, I mean, I know they don't have all the money in the world, but I just wonder if they could have done a alternate title <laughs> sequence or something. You know? It's yeah. Like the Cardassians are in charge. Maybe they would have been laying it on a little thick. At all, you know? Well, you know, it's funny to think about. Like, nowadays, uh, I, I think, I, I can't remember the last show. Maybe, I'll, maybe Mad Men. Um,. But like a lot of network shows don't even have opening credits anymore. There's just like a you know a title card, uh, a uh, you know a thirty second if that musical riff and that's it. Um, it would have been interesting if they had just cut the title sequence um, entirely until the station was re- was taken back. That that could have been fun. I think depicting a Cardassian controlled station. And here it is. This moment, seeing all of the Dominion ships and the Galar class ship docked at the station and Dukat giving his captain's log, 
that to me was like the clear flag. We are going to be here for a while because if nothing else, why would you waste the exquisite dramatic opportunities of seeing Ducat in his element? Really good job with the extras, I think, during the entire, um, you know, occupation, uh, for lack of a better word. Uh, a, a lot of Cardassian and Jemadar stuff, and that can have been easy to do, but there was al it always felt populated, and that was that was well done. Yeah, especially with such heavy makeup. I mean, it's... Um, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's like the uh, B-grade makeup for long shots. I'm sure in a Blu-ray it might appear a little uh, toned down, but... Still, so oh, and I wouldn't be surprised if they sort of restaged the same five guys. Yeah, dozens of times. I again, the Star Trek staff clearly knows their history, um, and they can they have a pretty deep, you know, bench to pull from. And I always I always like to read um, the the Bajorans in this situation as something of a reluctant Vichy France. Like the, the any collaboration is not enthusiastic or conscious it's just i th there's a lot of layers to this war story that go far far beyond good guys versus bad guys the bajorans are not in a position to oppose the dominion and while they may be reluctant obviously to help them that still doesn't mean they can ignore them and I, that kind of like line walking and i think they do a decent job to a point you know manifesting that in kira's story um i enjoyed that kind of storytelling because it gives the war a lot of very realistic depth. There's, it's not just even in a battle of good versus evil, the choices are not simply to be good or to be evil. And I think that 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 more than anything, the war story, given how much it uh, contradicts a standing order from Roddenberry that you know we not depict a sustained conflict, really has to justify its existence in a way. And I think coloring the politics of the war with situations like this really do that. Oh, I agree. I mean, we can think of several analogs that we could imagine. You know, it would be like, uh, I don't know, Palestinians, you know, who've had their own country, having it retaken over, but then asking to keep their weapons. Or you could imagine, uh, you know, Jews in Poland... You know, and, and a, a newly resurgent Nazi party comes back and, you know, says that they're friends. But, well, I mean, there, there's just lots of fun echoes. Um, Wayun is great here. Uh, this is probably the best Wayun performance so far, I would say. Uh, and, you know, the talk of Odo. It's interesting that they're showing us scenes purely with these guys, you know. Yeah, I get that's that. Like we're, we're not getting the we war. Don't see as much. Yeah, we're not getting it just from the Federation perspective. Yeah. Uh, these are three very good actors, and having met them all, delightful people. Um, but it's super fun just to just. Damar, whatever his secondary class status as a character was until later events bump him to the front of the line, he never acted like it, and it was just... Yeah. He, he could just throw a look that was just great. Well, there's no small parts, right? Just small actors. 
Um, I like the dialogue we're getting now. I think it does a non-ham-fisted job of portraying the passage of time. I always like it when Wayne sort of busts Ducat's balls. Yeah. I also... One of the things that made the Dominion such an interesting threat more than, say, the Klingons or even the Romulans, because we never got enough time with the Romulans, Weyun's statement, you know, like, we're winning the war, for now. Like, there's a pragmatism and a realism. Even even given his godlike adoration of the Founders, he is still a good strategist. He understands that it's not the Dominion's awesomeness that is going to win the war. And that makes them a way more credible villain because... You're not going to outwit the Dominion by playing on their egos and letting them talk themselves out of winning while you undo the handcuffs. You know, there's a real threat there when he's like, just because we're winning now doesn't mean we're absolutely going to win and we still have to play the game properly. That that makes the villain instantly more credible. Yeah. I kind of wonder what the Jemadar are actually doing. Yeah, other than being menacing. I'm just wondering why they would want to be there. You know, it's like it's a funny scene, you know, to have Cork be annoyed by their presence because they're not good paying customers. But why are they even there? They're just like sitting. Sucking down Ketrasol White, I guess. Uh, we've said it before, but Nana Visitor's acting has really improved over the course of the series. She's she's delivering this urgent conversation with a quiet intensity that I don't think... Maybe, maybe it's the writing as much as anything, but she's not shouting her concerns, and that's just a lovely step up. No, I, I agree totally. Um, it's interesting that... <laughs> Get this notion that she trusts Wayun more than Ducat. Well, I think I think they say it. it's it's a qualified trust. Like the Dominion has something to lose that is more valuable than stomping on Bajor by stomping on Bajor. She doesn't think that calculus holds for Ducat, and that's not. I don't think that's off the wall as a piece of analysis. You know, for all I've said about Kira Odo, scenes like this, were there enough of them, would actually make it almost palatable. Because, you know, it makes sense. It's like they're sort of the two outsiders. Yeah. So they're they're sharing adversity. That's a good way to build intimacy and stuff. I agree. It never quite jumps the hurdle necessary for a credible romance. I'm not as outraged as you but I, I i do like friendship scenes like this i think had they found a way to process odo's feelings for her through the lens of their friendship rather than as just humanoid romantic attachment it would have been more interesting um and i love Quark. i love quark and everything quark does <laughs> like bringing her a free drink to like commiserate about what's going i don't know it just it's 
it's a lovely nuanced quark thing to do. I wonder what that is in that cup. It's like some kind of smoothie. Yeah. You know, Quark's making an interesting point. You know, the the Dominion seems to be keeping order and peace and commerce going. And it's and it's not out of character. It's 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 consistent with what we saw of how they rule the the Gamma Quadrant. A certain amount of day to day operations is left largely untouched. Um, with like the the Karama memory serves. Uh, that that's very in keeping. So it's not even out of character that they're doing this to Bajra. This is how they run the universe. They let the worlds tend to themselves and manage at a very macro level. You know, we're almost 20 minutes in and we haven't gotten much forward plot advancement yet. I don't, I remember not minding it. Catching up with everyone is kind of the job of the season premiere. And I enjoyed all of it so much that I didn't feel like it was a waste. No, I mean, I'm not saying it's wasted. It's just, it's conspicuous to me. I believe that was a reuse of the T.O. No, sorry. The motion picture space dock, at least a portion of it. Uh, I, it's the flipped over version that they use as the, the regular lab in, in Wrath of Khan. Okay. All right, so now we have uh, uh, the, the twist moment. We've we've done our groundwork, and he's he's not he's losing command of the defined. What 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 what? And I gotta say, I I appreciate that much catching up in world building because if you're gonna tell this story, a lot of it ha- like that twenty minutes did a lot to give the war some temporal and geographic depth. So I think it was well used. And now that we've done that, we can mix things up. And, like, not only did he lose the station, he's apparently losing a ship. And, dear God, what the hell? Uh, I, the, the scene coming up with Cisco's father is, is one of my favorites between the two. Yeah, you know... So we're at about minute 20 here, and now we're finally getting to Jake, which seems like an odd uh, oversight. That's quite a big screen. And Brock Peters, I love his kitchen. I guess that's where his video phone is. Well, that makes sense. That's in character. There's not a lot to say about this. I, I just, uh, I think both both actors, I think, are doing a good job of connecting. Uh, from what I've heard of the production side of this, it's it's difficult to do these kinds of scenes with a lot of um, resonance because you're 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 talking to a production assistant essentially yeah, who's, who's reading the lines. Yeah. yeah, and they both do a good job of of giving it uh, some depth. And he, even uh, Avery Brooks' broader instincts seem well served here. I take it that we're supposed to be on that space dock. Yeah, yeah. Now, 
you know, with the non-angled walls and stuff. It's nice. <laughs> it's my one of my favorite lines in the entire series. You didn't raise me to be a liar. I raised you to be a chef for all the good it did me. I, I just that kind of like really dry sarcastic response to stress I, I that resonates with me i've always enjoyed this exchange that's a good point space is big you know that point being raised um if I'm going to criticize Star Trek as a whole for anything, it would be, you know, sort of a failure to really address that bigness, you know, like warp drive. You never really feel a true sense of scale of the universe. You know, it's, we're in the galaxy. Okay. So it's, it's the Milky way. And, even in the Milky Way, the distances between stars are just, I don't know. It, I, I get that they can't like spend time explaining math to us or, or something, but there's just, I don't know. Space is big. Like, it seems like you could probably go for months, years, without ever running into anybody. Um, all right, anyhow. This is a fun scene. Yeah. It is super naive of Jake here. It's almost ridiculous to think that the the occupying force, for better for for better for worse, would release critical reports. It, it, it's just like, come on. Oh, Jeffrey Combs is really. Really nailing. No, all of the words that come out of his mouth have this practiced political glean to them. That's just perfect. Like this is a Cardassian station. There are Cardassians here. Like it's just there's perspective. It's so authentic um, on both the part of the writer and the actor that I love it. What it's really reminding me of is the current situation with Russia and the way their diplomats talk. You know, and you just listen to them and it's just like, gosh, you're such a fucking liar, you know, but you're doing it so well. It's like, I, I can't help but sort of backhandedly admire, yeah. you know, the, the cognitive, the ability to maintain that level of cognitive dissonance. And I, so, I just want, I want to hear why you and say we're not bombing uh, Cambodia. We're bombing the Vietnam in Cambodia with a straight face and he would nail it. I remember it briefly shocking me that Admiral Ross was played by uh, Lieutenant Murtaugh from Family Matters. But I like him. He, he has that kind of weary, bureaucratic-ness that I think serves a Starfleet Admiral well. Yes, yeah, I hadn't seen him in anything before, so um, I think he fits. Yeah, and they finally gave him the, the appropriate Admiral's uniform for a middle-aged man, with the, or a, like a late middle-aged man with a late middle-aged man's body. Like, let's not have a triangle of sparkly fabric cut right across the paunch. What's that about? So is this a dad bod? 
No, I'd say this is a step up from a dad bod. The dad bod is like something like... I just have to remark that it's really cool to show us a space dock with a ship actually docked in it. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that they call back to the ship a an uneven episode, but one not without its interest. Um, and well, I like that they, hey, they bring it back. following up. That's cool. It shows us that they are paying attention. Like I, I really want to, I want to, I want to watch an episode while in an fMRI machine, so they can identify the specific strain of oxytocin that's released when continuity is honored. Yeah. Now, are they trying to indicate that Nog has advanced in? his year like is he is he a junior like what's the deal let's see he was a freshman in season four so he'd be a sophomore season five now he's a junior and he was on ds9 in season five or he was on ds9 for his like like assignment i could see during wartime and if the captain intervenes that he's a capable officer and it's not like I, I don't I wonder to what extent Starfleet Academy is still teaching, you know, exobiology for fun. You know, like they have to be on something of a war footing, you know. This set's okay. Not great. It, it's utilitarian. They are about to engage in one of my least favorite tropes when it comes to bad guys, is that the bad guys don't recognize their own ships as different in a way that we do. Like, in Star Trek Two, we knew it was the Reliant. No one thought, what a generic Miranda-class vessel. Like, that's just not how the Federation works. And the assumption that the bad guys work that way has always nagged me a little. Like, they would just see one of their own ships it looks like one of their own ships and therefore is without having any you know even like a radio transponder that says you know we're the good ship lollipop or what have you to identify it as a unique ship to prevent exactly this kind of plan from succeeding that's a really neat outfit on garrick i like that i love all of garrick's outfits and i want yeah, to own them nice. all and that is some that is some awesome Google Glass. I'm really glad they upgraded it from uh, from the season five ender with like the clunky shoulder harness. Well, it's a nice effect. The you know the view. Yeah, the inset. Yeah. It's a, it's a good prop. The the little like th- like filament of uh, light around the border is really well achieved. Yeah. Little blinky LEDs, that's cool. I gotta wonder if the sort of flickering would end up causing a serious headache after a, <laughs> a little while. You know, I hate to say it, there's something like, like visual, like the Cardassian ship docked at the station has a certain, like they really did a good job when they designed the station uh, of making it feel of a piece with the Cardassian ship so that now that we see them together, it's like, nope, nope, that works. Yeah. So, three months have passed. And now Dukat's finally going to start hitting on Kira again. (laughs) 
I haven't dismissed you yet. Uh, these scenes just crackle. There is just <laughs> such good energy. It builds off the actors and the history. It's it's just really well done. Who's that person in the background? there's a way that Kira's holding her body that's like I'm actively restraining myself from killing you with my bare hands don't push it too far dude that's it's great like there, there's like a tension in her shoulders that is just yeah. really apparent and it's fun watching Ducat try to justify all of this Yeah, and she, you know, you can tell she's trying to get her licks in, you know? Yeah. If anything, you know, I think maybe the writing is going too quickly in putting them at odds with each other. I think she should be, you know, trying to hide it a little bit more. I mean, she's basically coming out and saying that she wants him to lose, which seems counter to her goals of keeping, you know, the Bajoran uh, personnel armed and, you know, capable. That's not to say these scenes aren't good. I just wonder, you know, if this is just a little too early. I do love you think we're gonna have some kind of intimate relationship oh we do major it's such a great line it's so yeah. creepy and upsetting yeah and then he laughs about it seeing him smile is probably the most upsetting oh I know I know it's like oh, I need an adult <laughs> I need my rape whistle I just I just wish there had been a button to open the door which would have justified all of their standing by the door. No, there was. He hit it. Oh, okay. Yeah. It wasn't even the drama circuit this time. All right, so there are side effects. Headaches. Does he really have to wear it nonstop? I mean, once you're on your way, can't you just take it off? And <laughs> just navigate by sensors, yeah. It's like, we're still at work. You know, the, I have to say, that, that's that got to be... It's not in the top five, but it might be in the top ten of props of, from the show I might actually like to own. <laughs> now, would it have to be functional? You'd want it to, like, actually display something? Well, yeah. hey, hey, hey. One day, once they work the kinks out of Google Glass, they're going to show pictures of this the way they show pictures of the communicator before talking about Nokia flip phones. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
Well, they're already doing it about replicators with 3D, 3D printers, printers and yeah. Like that. I always like that uh, Garrick is the ruthless pragmatist. Uh, you know, did Starfleet really make no provision for making sure that they don't attack this ship? Well, I imagine that would be a that would that would be an intelligence risk. The more people that know about it, I also like that the ship looks of a piece. It looks very like Reliance style, but it's not strictly a Miranda class. It appears to be some maybe kit bash or some here to. It looked really futuristic. Like it, it looked almost like the Enterprise J from yeah Enterprise. Well, yeah. Is it is it an because it's is it an Akira class? Because it's not quite it. No, it's not. Yeah, it, it just it. it I always enjoy any time they introduce a new class of Starfleet ship. It just, you know, makes me makes me all gooey. Sure. I think there's a danger, you know, when you have so many that you might, uh, you know, make them less special. USS Centaur. Well, clearly, and this is what I'm saying, they didn't go back to it because in Memory Alpha they just call it a centaur-type starship. Yeah. So it's like, if you're going to make the model, give it give it like a history, give it a, a purpose for looking the way it looks. You know, like the Nebula class was supposed to be this sort of like heavy cruiser kind of thing. Right, like a weapons platform that hangs back and lays down, you know, like a bat- like a mobile battery. Yeah, And it fit. It fit the look. Yeah. You know? And, you know, so did the Reliant class or the the uh, Oberth class. Right. You know? Like, they seem to fit their things. Yeah, like I said, this right here is like the only bit that bothers me about this plan. It involves the Jem'Hadar not recognizing a... Sp- like, wouldn't that be like, oh, that's the Jem'Hadar ship that was captured two years ago or something. Yeah, it's right there, painted on the side. It's, it's, I don't know. If you're Dukat, if you're Wayun, wouldn't you just get both of these people off the station? You know? I'm sure that would risk alienating the Bajorans. I assume they're both. Give us a new Bajoran liaison officer, you know? Send Odo to a fabulous retreat where he can, (laughs) you know, shapeshift into all kinds of different containers. It's just. It's so obvious that they're major security risks. I could also see Dukat's ego not permitting him to do that. Like, yeah. he'd want to... So I feel like you have to say that, you know? I always think about that scene from uh, Encounter at Farpoint whenever I uh, see the Jem'Hadar insert the tubes of white. Of the uh, U.S. of the United Earth soldier doing the same thing. Mmm, better. <laughs> there is how long one of these tubes of white is supposed to last. I don't think they ever said. Uh, but I would love to watch these two guys do literally anything in, on stage. Like, th- like 
there, there's just a half dozen plays I could rattle off that I would love to see the two of them do. <laughs> They're so good at hating each other. <laughs> And I, I really want Jeffrey Combs to teach me how to, like, breathe out in that particular way while he talks. I love watching him do that. Like, even the way he pivots to the intensity of that line. This is between me and Odo. Like, there's just something... It It's over the top, but it's still very authentic. But then, of course, there's the now that I've done you a favor and it's, you know, obviously it's one of Ron Moore's strengths. He can write politics like nobody's business. He Like whatever other sins we can lay at his feet about satisfactorily resolving or maintaining the internal structure of a plot. Final five looking at you. Um, he, he writes humanoid politics extremely well. Um it just makes them so much fun. Like, even this conversation just nails this. Like, we got something we wanted, but we had to give up something we didn't want to. So who's really ahead here? Like, yes, Odo's presence does validate the Dominion position on the station, but they don't actually need Odo's validation. They are, in fact, in charge. It's just... This kind of mushy, give-and-take, ruthless type of pragmatism, it just it just makes it so much fun to watch because it wasn't just good guys versus bad guys and the good guys win because they're good and nothing happens too fast for me. It's no, Nothing gets resolved overly quickly. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, having seen the subsequent episodes, I know it's going to bear a story fruit, so... I mean, it's just sort of like uh, in Return of the Jedi, you know, when Shuttle Tiderium is, you know, requesting resupply at the, the under construction Death Star. <laughs> at least with the Empire, they're supposed to be like such a bloated bureaucracy that you could imagine them being able to take advantage of that. I agree with you here that it's a little bit uh, credulity stretching. You know, with all these headsets and stuff, couldn't they just request a visual? Yeah. Of actual Jemadar? What language are they speaking? This is something that Star Trek has never been particularly Yeah, about. yeah. It's still, a pre I let it go because it's appropriately tense, you know? Yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad scene. There's just a few, a few things that nerds like us might nitpick over. You know, one day they'll make a Star Trek episode without anything to nitpick, and we'll criticize it for being inorganic. <laughs> like, how do they know the protocols for all this? Do they have intelligence? How could they have intelligence? You 
Now, we haven't said enough nice things about Andrew Robinson's acting, and we should, because he's great. Thank you, Doctor. What are you doing on the bridge again? Well, we've established there is no actual sickbay, I mean. So he's just there to deliver somewhat obvious plot details? Yeah. Yeah, I like the tension of the scene. You know, as a, as a tech solution, this isn't so bad. Um, you know, they're not they're not relying on any sort of. I mean, yes, a radial geodesic warp field of thirty nine Cochrans, blah blah blah. But the, the mechanics of it are simple enough. So yeah, yeah. To be honest, it's like, well, if we're going fast enough, the explosion won't get us. Okay, like I can get on board with that. Yeah, and, and I like the group solution. Everyone provides a piece. I like uh, O'Brien and uh, um, Nog's rapport. There's there, there's a very nice mentor-mentee relationship there whenever they whenever they display it. See, now that was a good explosion. Yeah. Where were these explosions last season? Yeah. Okay, that fire wasn't great. Well, the fire was fire. It wasn't, you know, deep space. But I, I, I'm fine. It's, it's just too much, like, terrestrial fire. But the explosion itself was good. I mean, really, what we need NASA to do is to do some experiments with exploding things in space just to, you know, really nail it down. Yeah, give us a baseline. TV yeah. producers. Hey, maybe if uh, TV, if the... You know, Hollywood community underwrites the trip. I'm sure they'd welcome the money. Really? Only 17 years? Yeah, I mean, even at half of light speed... That still means you're only 34 light years into... Alright, that sounds... That's a long distance, I guess. Um, good damage effects. I, like, I always like trailing particles. They make me happy. Okay, so... It wasn't a barn burner. Yeah, there's not, there's not a grand philosophical or science fiction reach in this episode, but there's... A season premiere has to telegraph something beyond the four walls of its episode. And I think this episode does that. It says, the war is not going to be over quickly or easily. Deep Space Nine will not be recaptured quickly or easily. Our characters are going to be forced to make incredibly difficult decisions. There's just something very cool about... like, uh, In terms of tone and energy, this episode telegraphs season six perfectly. Yeah, and there's I a think lot of really that, nice character interplay. Yeah. 
Uh, it sets up sort of the, the various tensions that are going to play out uh, over the, the next arc. Um, yeah, I, you know, I kind of find myself wishing for a little bit more of a climax. I feel like the Klingons were pretty underutilized. Uh, you know, it's like Worf showed up for a scene. They talked about a wedding and then they were just gone. You know, and I get that there's a lot of balls in the air and not all of them are going to be, you know, sort of talked about in a given episode. Uh, that part seemed a little perfunctory. Well, I just realized that there's going to be a problem when it comes to rating these episodes is how do we rate an episode whose explicit purpose is merely to continue but not resolve a story? How do you like our, our standard rubric for analyzing the writing won't won't apply perfectly? Well, I mean, look, no matter how you slice it, this is still a piece of weekly television, you know? And so it has to be entertaining enough on its own terms, even if you haven't seen the prior episode or the subsequent episode, you know? And so Deep Space Nine, especially season six, was always going to be a season that was very how to put it, uh, inaccessible in some ways, you know, in a way that TNG or Voyager are not. Um, and look, it, you know, it, this can't be a five, right? Because it, it's not a complete story, <laughs> you know? It, so look, back to Star Wars uh, metaphors, right? Um, clearly... Empire Strikes Back is the midpoint of a three-part story, right? But it's really satisfying on its own. Like, you can pop in Empire Strikes Back, watch it, not watch any of the other two parts, and it's still a very coherent, you know, beginning, middle, end, you know, tension, resolution, you know, sort of story. Even if the whole overall saga isn't resolved, it's... You know, freaking great. No, no, I, I think there, there there will be episodes in the arc that have at least a shot at a five. Um, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So my point is that this is not one of them. Yeah. You know, uh, because it's it's almost. Uh, I mean, it's a prologue. Yeah. I, well, and I think there's a way to tell, you know, thirty minutes of self-contained story with fifteen minutes of you know. Uh, plot overall plot advancement and I think we'll see those episodes you know uh, this one had a lot of like narrative heavy lifting to do you know it had to recap everything for anybody who's just starting to watch it you know there were loads of scenes you know it's like and guess what viewers the doctor is genetically engineered you know oh and remember uh, here's a minefield you know right I mean it's just there's so much of that going on that there's no time to really give us the coherent beginning, middle, end, self-contained story. Um, that said, I, I think we can still judge these episodes on their own individual episodic merits. You know, as an individual episode of Deep Space Nine, this was entertaining. Yeah, it had, uh, you know two terrific i mean are we even going to call them guest actors at this point i mean that they're you know regulars uh 
in Jeffrey Combs and Marco Lima uh, with you know some really wonderful scenes between them and then also integrating uh, Nana Visitor uh, who was particularly good I would say if anything it's the the Starfleet plot that kind of you know doesn't deliver here you know it's like oh there, there's like a station and they're trying to get drugs and for some reason it goes wrong we don't know the reason um, you know it, it was just a little bit of a clunky setup for that will it bear fruit later maybe you know but in this episode I do, I mean do you agree do you do you find yourself wishing for more of the you know Kira Dukat Wayun stuff and less of the you know Starfleet stuff because I do yeah I, I get that um I just like I, I liked the ambition of this episode in terms of setting up what is clearly a longer arc of stories so that's uh that's something I really enjoy. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think the writing overall is a four. It's very good. It lacks a little, it lacks one of those transcending qualities we tend to look for in our fives. There are episodes coming down the pipe that I think have a decent shot at a five. Uh, just going on my own recollection. Um, in terms no, of, I, I agree. Yeah. I, I think the writing is a three and I think the acting and production values are both at least fours production might even be a five yeah yeah some of that that work was really good like it what i like is there's a lot of work being done that's very subtle but very useful in terms of giving the story some life like the the gem hadar ship docked in the space station they the story would have trundled along on its own without that shot but it's just one of those like oh that's really cool to look at like it just it adds some depth to the universe so well and the the fleet you know sort of limping home yeah, that was a really nice shot, um, and a nice counterpoint to the last season finale. Um, like we, we've said this before, uh, Deep Space Nine, in particular, and Star Trek in general, tends to do better, with the exception of Best of Both Worlds, when its uh, season finales tend to leave a little breathing room, narratively, and they still manage to do that while finding a way to tie the two together with the closing and opening shot. So I like that a lot. Um, yeah. I, I would say in the balance, this is a solid four. It's close to, like, on terms of raw entertainment value for me, I want to give it a five, but I think it's a solid four. Yeah, I, I don't think a five is doable for this episode because it's just not self-contained enough. Um, but I agree with the four. Uh, you know, so I would say it was flirting with a three, but it, you know, the sort of fundamentals of the acting and the production, you know, lifted this to a four. Um, there's half of a really good episode here. And I think maybe if they had just focused more on the station stuff, you know, there have been several episodes where Kira has been put in a difficult spot. She's had to reconcile, you know, her hatred of Cardassians with some, you know, sort of broader, uh, you know, goal or something. So I think there were ways to dramatize that, which weren't really done here. Um, you know, and it's because the Starfleet plot is, uh, you know, sort of pulling at it a little bit. Um, but yeah, it's entertaining. It, it's an odd, odd kind of 
drawdown of action and tension from the the season finale, you know? It's like that ended on a real bang with like, you know, explosions and people running places and, you know, evacuating and you know and I, I'm just making a note of that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It it's uh it's just it's notable that the creative staff made a conscious decision to slow things down, you know, and I, I like that decision. Yeah. Uh, because, as you said, you know, as a Trek fan, you're always kind of wondering and maybe even worried that they're going to resolve things too quickly to get things back to the status quo. You know, hit the reset button, and it, it's it's a nice feeling to know that they're in this for the long haul. I just think that there's the possibility that they could have told a more self-contained character story with a beginning, middle, and end within the context of, you know, advancing the big plot. And they're going to get better at that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would say it's a, they scraped into four territory with some continuity and some acting and some, you know, really nifty effects shots that, you know, are bound to please nerds like us. Yeah. All right, that's a total of eight for Time to Stand. And uh, happy to be back in Deep Space Nine in one of its uh, better seasons. Um, should well, be a lot of fun. this the one that most people consider the best? Uh, I think six and seven go back and... Uh, no, this is better than seven, I think, in my I head. I think it's better than seven. Yeah. Seven goes in some weird directions. <laughs> um, yeah. No, that... Based on my recollection, season six is by far the best of Deep Space Nine. Uh, this was a, a promising, if not perfect, beginning yeah. to that run. Um, yeah, I, I think it's pretty fair. I, I mean, thinking about other eights we've had, so we just did Voyager. Um, you know, the, some of the eights in that one were uh, Distant Origin. Um Future's End, right? Uh, Scorpion, you know? Like, I think this is as good, or at least in the same ballpark, as Distant Origin or Future's End. Um, those episodes obviously had a little bit more of that, you know, sort of self-contained vibe to them. But this one had a lot of fine qualities. Yeah. Okay. Well. All right. Well, that's an eight for time to stand, and we'll be back for our next podcast uh, here at Trucknababble. Yeah, we will keep on trucking with Deep Space Nine. All right. Have a good night, everyone. Live long and prosper. <laughs>